in this holiday time where we imagine peace on earth, we're still living with war. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. In the almost 20 years since 9-11, after all that expense, all those deaths and injuries, are we more secure or less secure as a result? Have we at least reduced the power or ability of those who seek to do us harm? What has the huge expenditure of lives and treasure actually yielded? Has it at least been in our national security interest? With the incoming Biden administration, might this be a moment, a rare opportunity to catch our breath and stop before we continue on a road to disaster? Does Biden accept the requirement of America continuing its role as the world's superpower? Is the long-standing belief in the necessity of something called American world leadership still applicable, or has it worn out whether we know it or not? In this moment of unplanned for reflection due to COVID, this instant of finally throwing up the sickness that was Trump and his nationalistic disease, might this be a new crossroads? Or will we go on marching as usual to the old military band without looking and seeing where we've gone before pushing on and on in the same unthinking direction? Our returning guest today is Dr. Rebecca Gordon. She's written about this moment in a new article titled, It's Almost 20 Years Since 9-11. Can We Finally Stop Marching to Disaster? Rebecca Gordon, thanks for being back with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a pleasure to be with you. Rebecca Gordon teaches at the University of San Francisco. She's author of American Nuremberg, the U.S. officials who should stand trial for post-9-11 war crimes, and is now at work on a new book on the history of torture in the United States. Well, just thinking about that book that you have now, some of the people that uh, Trump pardoned for the uh, massacre, the slaughter of innocent mm-hmm. civilians, I mean... They and he, I would think, should stand trial for post-9-11 war crimes. It's, I, I wonder, just aside from the obvious incredible injustice, what's that going to do to our national security interests? Oh, it's absurd. You know, one of the problems with war crimes is that because the United States has refused to allow itself to be held accountable in any way for war crimes, this Impunity is the language that legal scholars use, this inability to punish the people who are responsible or hold them accountable in any way simply opens the door for more and continued war crimes. That was the whole point of American Nuremberg, not that people necessarily needed to be in jail, but that there needs to be a real accounting for the crimes the United States has committed. And, you know, these are not the first war criminals that Donald Trump has pardoned. He also has celebrated the cause of other folks who, uh, Navy SEALs, who were accused of war crimes. He has never met a war criminal he doesn't like. These particular four people who were working at the time for Blackwater were guilty of a massacre in a public square in, in Baghdad. 14 civilians died, and the BBC had on one of their, um, the father of a nine-year-old boy who was the youngest tra- person to die in that attack. And 
he was talking about exactly the question you asked. He said, no human, no person should be above the law. President Trump has placed himself above the law in pardoning these people. And that's exactly what we've done. And so I have to ask, how can we expect the world to hold people accountable who might attack the United States uh. if we're not willing to hold ourselves accountable? And I can't imagine what this does among the people of Iraq. Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. like this is going to discourage them. I don't think no, so. Obviously not. <laughs> I mean, this is this is the final slap in the face to the people of Iraq from this genuinely outgoing President Donald Trump. But it's probably not the end of U.S. involvement in Iraq because we've never met a war that we that we seem to be able to get out of since um, 1991 when we invaded Iraq for the first time. This does not make the United States more secure. I also want to point out that the United States under President George W. Bush withdrew from the International Criminal Court, which is the court that inherited essentially the mantle of the Nuremberg trials. It took 50 years, but the idea behind those trials was that there would be a permanent venue, international venue, where international law could be enforced if individual countries were unable to hold their war criminals responsible. The U.S. withdrew. However, Afghanistan remains a party to, uh, to the treaty that oh. created the International Criminal Court. And the head prosecutor of the court has looked into, at the request of some people in Afghanistan, to holding responsible some of the people who set up the CIA torture sites in Afghanistan and tortured to death certain, some members mm -hmm. of, you know, some Afghans. And in response to this, the Trump administration a couple of years ago denied to her a visa to come to the United States to collect testimony, which would have been necessary to um, create mounting a prosecution of CIA officials responsible for those tortures. So Trump has, again, worked directly against holding people accountable and directly in favor of impunity for war criminals. So we shouldn't be surprised by this latest move. Yeah. You know, also, Blackwater, mm -hmm. as I'm sure you know, is one, just one of many mercenary organizations around the world who will probably pick up the work that has presently been done by U.S. military. So just because we bring troops home doesn't mean that we've brought our contractors home. And Blackwater, which um, has been through a number of name changes since then, was the brainchild of Eric Prince, who uh -huh. is the brother of Betsy, Betsy DeVos, DeVos. Mm -hmm. who is Trump's uh, secretary of education. So, you know, there's a real personal connection there between Trump and and Eric Prince. I'm sure he received a request from Prince to um, mm -hmm. pardon these people. Uh, you know, the, in many ways, Trump is different and unique, but in other ways, 
you know, in other ways, not so much. It, it's a tradition going back to at least the so-called Spanish-American War of 1898, when we expanded our empire, expanded our footprint, and we've been militarized, militarizing the world ever since then. And uh, it can't be any surprise, with all the everyday madness of the Trump presidency, that America's continuing military actions have been largely off of our radar screens. Yes. Middle East and Africa, please bring us up to speed about the continuing military actions in the Middle East and Africa. Well, one of them that is a disaster that is recognized by the rest of the world, but which you never hear about in the United States, is what's happened to the country of Yemen. Uh, Yemen has been really essentially in famine for now two or three years. And, you know, if you Google Yemen, you will see pictures of children with giant stomachs and tiny stick-like arms and legs Mm -hmm. because they are starving. And they're starving as the result of a civil war which is being maintained by Saudi Arabia. And the United States has long been involved Um, And this did not start with the Trump administration. It started with Obama and Biden, although Biden now says that he is willing that he would stop U.S. cooperation with Saudi Arabia. But essentially, the U.S. provided midair refueling and money, of course, Mm -hmm. to fight this civil war in Yemen, in which, by the way, we have ended up, ironically, on the same side occasionally as al-Qaeda forces that are in, 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 uh, located in Yemen. And um, so this is one example. In addition, the U.S. is currently uh, deployed and active in 22 different countries in Africa. And this is something we never hear about. Right. But we we have, you know, a big, a big base in Djibouti. And we have uh, smaller bases all over the continent. The um, the supposed rationale for this is the uh, explosion of Islamist terrorist organizations around the continent. And one would have to ask whether you know, U.S. policy had anything to do with the creation and spread of those things. Um, but this is, you know, this is a policy that goes back to Donald Rumsfeld's observations right after after the attacks in, of 9-11 that, you know, this was an enemy that was in six, 50 right. or 60 countries. This is a war of generations. And, you know, some of us who studied civics way back in grade school may remember that the the branch of the U.S. government that is supposed to have the power to declare war yes. is which one? The legislative, right? <laughs> yeah, Congress. That's the idea. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember the last time Congress actually declared war? That would be World War Two. That's what I thought. And all the wars that have been fought by the U.S., both the covert wars and the overt wars, from Korea to Vietnam to the first Gulf War to the war wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, all of those have been fought with uh, the abdication of the, that mm-hmm. power to declare war to the executive branch. And as a result, the presidency has become more and more powerful, and the power of Congress has become less and less. And this is seen nowhere more than in the world of war making. 
So the wars that are going on now are supported by two authorizations for the use of military force, right? right? Uh The first one was initially in the months right after September 11th, and it was explicitly to bring to justice any country that was harboring the people who uh, attacked us on 9-11 and those people themselves. So that essentially was Afghanistan. Now, the Bush administration did their best to convince us and the world that Saddam Hussein had in some way or another worked with al-Qaeda, although, in fact, they hated each other and had nothing to do with each other, as we know. And um, so Congress then passed another authorization for the use of military force that was specifically to permit the invasion of Iraq which happened in March of 2003. And all of the wars and the war fighting that has gone on since then is dependent on those now almost 20-year-old authorizations for the use of military force, which have been stretched like silly putty to cover everything, Um, you know, from, from the Philippines to Somalia. And it's... You know, and you might wonder, well, what is the U.S. interest in Africa? And some of it is strategic and territorial, Mm -hmm. but a lot of it absolutely has to do with the fact that Africa is the location of some of the most important natural resources, especially those rare earths that are so crucial to the technological revolution, to, you know, the cell phones that we are talking on Mm -hmm. right now. Mm Um, There are no doubt minerals contained in my cell phone that came out of the Democratic Republic of Congo or somewhere like that. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the the primary adversary in all of this isn't really those, um, you know, horrifying as they are, those small armed, uh, those Islamic Islamist organizations who are kept alive, by the way, by the small arms um, uh, world, including the NRA and its um, yep. its people. But the real strategic adversary there is China. Right. And this is a new scramble for Africa. <laughs> and right. That's an old and phrase, the scramble for it's Africa. It's an old phrase, the scramble for Africa, right, which was, you know, in the 19th century, it was the European powers who were carving up the continent yes, of Africa. Yes. And, you know, what they wanted then was rubber and eventually um, oil. And today the scramble for Africa is over those rare earths and the adversary is China. Well, uh, Trump, of course, referred to uh, the countries in Africa as, and I guess I can say this on the air, even though it doesn't feel yeah. right, shithole countries. China yes. is doing that Belt and Road Initiative. Uh-huh. They're building uh-huh. a lot of things. What, uh-huh. what about, I mean, are we achieving any American objectives in those regions, given what Trump said about them? Is progress being made at all toward achieving them? Or have we just basically surrendered to the Chinese, you know, because they're investing a lot of money into uh, developing Africa? Uh, are we moving ahead at all there? Or are we just completely behind the eight ball. Well, I have to ask, of course, when we say we, which part (laughs) of the United States are we talking about, right? Are we talking about corporate 
multinational corporate interests? Mm-hmm. Are we talking about the interests of, you know, the guy who delivers my Amazon packages? Because those interests are not necessarily yes. the same. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> uh, but I would say that um, the United States, by relying more on military and less on economic power, has, um, if the goal is to secure the uh, dependence sure. of African nations, that, you know, there are two different strategies for the same purpose. And the truth is that I don't know whether it's better to be a poor nation that's in hock to the, com- to the Chinese government or to be in hock to the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Mm. It's really kind of a toss-up. Yeah, true. That's a good point there. The World Bank and the IMF are not nice people either. (laughs) No, and I don't hold any particular brief for the government of China. I, I mean, we are watching a genocide take place against the the Uyghur people in slow motion that... Mm -hmm. um, you know, the world is simply just turning its eyes away yep. and allowing to happen. Absolutely amazing. And we're the question we're asking here on today's version of Keeping Democracy Alive with our guest, Dr. Rebecca Gordon, is, is can we finally stop marching to disaster with this policy that's been going on for nearly 20 years, military all the time? And... It's interesting. I was certainly part of the peace movement back in the, you know, during the Vietnam era. Mm-hmm. And I note, so I'm obviously a lot older than you are. You and three friends. <laughs> oh, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> you, you and three friends, I think this is interesting, uh, got together one night shortly after September 11th and a new project was born, The War Times. What was its intent and the audience? And in what ways did your rather prescient expectation that the U.S. response would be grotesquely disproportionate prove mm-hmm. true domestically and in terms of foreign policy. So that was my friend Max Elbaum and my friend Bob Wing and my partner Jan Adams. And wartime Tiempo de Guerras was, you have to cast your mind back now to the world of 2001. There was an internet, but it wasn't nearly what it is now almost 20 years later. It didn't have the reach. It didn't have the same 24-hour news cycle that we live in now. And so we were trying to figure out what was something that the skills that we had as writers and people who had been longtime political observers, and you think you're older than I am, but I was born in 1952, so we could have a contest about that. I beat you. But, I beat you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but the plan, the idea was that we would create a paper, an actual tabloid uh-huh. newsprint paper that we would distribute for free around the country and At its height, we actually, from my basement, were distributing 100,000 copies of this every six weeks to over 700 peace organizations in cities and towns all over the country. The fact that it was bilingual meant that there were ESL teachers in the southeastern United States who were using it as, um, as a means of teaching their ESL classes. And it was something that we could hand out 
in public places that we could hand out in in a way that, as we said at the time, you can't hand someone a website. Of course, nobody was walking mm. around in those days with a cell phone that would allow them to mm. bring up a website, right? Yeah. It was a different time. But the idea, too, was we knew there was going to be a peace movement. And in fact, one did develop and United for Peace and Justice and Win Without War and a number of other large coalitions did eventually develop. But we wanted to create the possibility to occupy that space that said there is another response to these attacks besides starting what we knew was going to be a never ending war. I mean, we talked about all war all the time in mm. our first issue of War Times uh-huh. because it was already clear where this was going. And um, yeah. Most most unfortunately. So now I wonder, you know, back in the late 60s, early 70s, newspapers and uh, we obviously there was no internet. And now I wonder how the new dynamic of the internet. Uh, has had what what the effect has been on organizing against new wars. I was frankly a bit surprised that back in two thousand three that there was not more of a anti war movement. But it seemed that the other side did learn the lesson about keeping on top of uh, of the language, the information, mm-hmm. controlling that. But uh, how how has the internet? I mean, I can see in some ways it makes it a lot easier to organize uh, against new wars. But what what's your sense of how it's really gone? Well, first of all, I want to challenge the idea that there wasn't opposition to the U.S. invasion of Iraq because all over the world there were oh, millions world, of people yes. in the streets yes. and here in the united states too i mean i live in san francisco and we you know, we made a mess of the city for a while yeah but i think that and i talk and this is something i talk with my students about a lot because they very often when they think about a political issue and what action about that issue might entail, their first turn is to social media and to circulating and signing petitions and online. Uh-huh. And the the movement from the internet to the streets or to other kinds of action is sometimes a hard one for people to make. And I'm not convinced. I mean, on the one hand, the internet has made it much easier to reach lots of people quickly. On the other hand, there is just such a fire hose of content coming at people that I I think sometimes it's hard for people to sort out. And ultimately, no petition, A, petitions are circulated online really to collect names in order to right. have contacts for your organization. Raise That's why I don't sign them. Yeah. yeah. Um, but B, they have no effect in the real world. What has an effect in the real world is a combination of in, inside outside strategies, street heat. And, you know, what I spent three months doing this past fall was working with Unite Here, the hospitality industry union in their their on-the-ground, door-to-door electoral campaign in Reno, Nevada, to elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Imperfect as they are, and they are. Um, The union and, um, and by the way, Unite Here was the only organization in the country just about that was in the face of the pandemic doing a door-to-door 
conversations with people on their doorsteps campaign. Um, Even the Democratic Party, they had what we called a littering campaign, which is basically you pass out literature by leaving it on people's doorsteps, but Uh they weren't talking to people. And as a result of our campaign in Nevada, uh, we, you know, we not only won Nevada for the Democratic Party, but in the county where I worked, Washoe, we added about 8,000 votes in addition to what we won by in 2018. So we did an incredible job. And it, it does... and then we elected an imperfect president. Yes. Well, <laughs> but we could talk about the whole process of, uh, you know, being a, a head of state and head of government. And you never... I mean, I would. I supported Bernie. I'm guessing you did too. I actually, I was an Elizabeth fan, but I was That's okay fine. with Bernie too. But here we are. You know, the guy won. We got rid of Trump, which we saved right. democracy just barely. But uh, and now here we are in this new position. We're about to start a new year. Mm-hmm. May it be better than 2020, please. Oh, oh my God. Yes. But you know, I wonder what possibilities there might be. As you're saying, you know, on the internet, people have uh, gotten organized, they've gotten information, they act quickly sometimes, and Mm -hmm. it can can really help uh, to organize uh, and create, I mean, it's a new information source. You know, it's not just ABC, NBC, and CBS anymore. It's all over the place. And I I think, I'm guessing that this may be a moment where we can... You know, put some pressure on uh, mm-hmm. on President Biden and uh, Vice President uh, Harris, and that uh, we, you know, it, it hasn't happened yet. He is not president yet, and people don't right. focus generally. And who knows? <laughs> people don't generally focus on foreign policy when voting no. for a president. It's like no. really low on the list. But I'm yes. thinking that what what, what can you know, as we we decide, you know, can we stop finally marching to disaster? Disaster. Yeah. What can the, the internet? What can what can it be used for? How can it be most effective? Do you think? That's a really interesting question, um, and I think that the key point here is exactly what you said: that we have to find ways to press this new administration that are actually effective and. The internet could be um, one of the means that we that we use for doing that. But before we even figure out, like, what are the what are the tools we're going to use? We have to figure out, okay, what's what is the meth? What is it that is going to actually have an effect? And you know, ever since the end of World War II, and probably going back further than that, there has really been an agreement between the two parties. There's a disagreement in the realm of domestic affairs between the Democrats and the Republicans, and there's an agreement, a fundamental agreement, that U.S. security depends on the projection of U.S. military force around the world, and the and that we must lead multilateral organizations like NATO in order to maintain our dominance of the world. That is a very difficult agreement to break. Uh, The person who's come closest to breaking it in some ways is actually Donald Trump, um, in that he had this this contradictory, isolationist, Mm -hmm. come military buildup sort of view of of 
what U.S. strategy, and I use that term very loosely yeah. when referring to Trump, <laughs> um, should be. But so I think that I think that one realm where we where the part of the problem is that what the U.S. is doing in foreign countries, it's very hard for people to recognize that that affects them in their daily lives in True. any way. Yes. You know, you know, the old expression, so broke, you can't pay attention. Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole country at this point um, is so broke and so struggling and so, you know, really in crisis that it's very hard to pay attention to anything outside the U.S. I would say that one wedge area mm -hmm. where we might be able to have an effect is immigration and the relationship between immigration and U.S. support um, for Central American um, authoritarian and repressive regimes. And I don't know if you've had a chance to look at Biden's Central America policy. I have not. Tell us. Well, it's basically more of the same. Oh. It's, you know, in the sense that the U.S. should provide all kinds of support to these governments and should, um, and by the, these governments, I mean specifically Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, mm -hmm. um, and that the United States should continue to do, I mean, it was this, it's the same rhetoric we've heard since the 80s. Yes. We teach them about, you know, about human rights and mm -hmm. we train their people to be um, good, supportive recognizers of the Geneva Conventions and all the other conventions that protect human rights and we continue the war on drugs and we continue, you know, the sort of the, the language for this is neoliberal. But what right. that means is the idea that what is going to uh, make these countries' economies grow is essentially external investment by multinational corporations and developing crops for export, developing uh, a kind of capitalist economy that essentially, you know, it's not a policy that's much of a change from Ronald Reagan's in, 19, in the 1980s. Right. And, you know, unfortunately, Biden's history on this starts in a way, you know, when he, when the Obama administration was just entering office in right. 2009 oh, I know. there was a coup in Honduras yes. and the Manuel Zelaya who was the democratically mm -hmm. elected president was thrown out by the military and in the first hours um, then Secretary right. of, well she wasn't yet Secretary of State but Hillary Clinton said you know this is, this is um, a coup this is a bad thing but within 24 hours the position had changed and Porfirio Lobo was the guy who came in after that. And essentially, Honduras is now back to being right. a narco-military-run uh, country. And it's no shock that people are desperately trying to get out of a country that is really not functioning at all for the security of its people. Similarly, El Salvador, uh, Guatemala, we continue to support repressive governments in both those places. And, um, you know, one of the big, the big 
exports from the United States to El Salvador. And I actually saw this when I was there in 93. I've been there a few times, but um, was U.S. gangs and U.S. gang culture. So Salvadorans in the 80s came and lived especially, well, some in, in the East, but a lot in Los Angeles yes. and San Francisco. And the gangs that were formed in that time, when the war ended in El Salvador and people went back, they brought the gangs with them. So when I was in San Salvador in 1993, I actually saw graffiti from my little local street level gang, the 22B gang, which is 22nd and Bryant Street, where I used to live in San Francisco, literally saw their graffiti on the walls of houses in San Salvador. Because, yeah. Well, I was just going to, you know, I was, I I can imagine the people back in 2009 in Central America were hopeful. We had just elected Barack Obama, right. maybe there'd be a change. Maybe we'd yeah. treat them with respect and care about their, you know, well-being. And we still have the option of doing that. We actually yes. do in so many places around the world that, you know, why do people leave their countries to get up and to leave everything behind? Can you imagine? That's hard to do. It takes a lot to inspire right. somebody to actually do that. And, you know, Trump... Uh, may not have started any new wars, and I guess we can give him some credit for that. But for he's, that. <laughs> yeah, but he certainly, the policy has been to encourage refugees, to cause conditions yes. that people oh. have to leave. And the opportunity is there for us at saving a lot of money to uh-huh. have a different policy and, again, treat people with respect as as opposed to, you know, some kind of, just sort of unconscious acceptance that this is a noble cause of the U.S. ruling the world. I I, I just, there is an opportunity for change. And we're talking about that opportunity for change on Keeping Democracy Live. I'm Bert Cohen. I guess today, again, is Dr. Rebecca Gordon, who teaches at the University of San Francisco and is the author of American Nuremberg, the U.S. official who should stand trial for post-9-11 war crimes. And she's written an article called, Can We Finally Stop Marching to Disaster? And I did, I got to mention, in terms of war crimes, Henry Kissinger, mm-hmm. okay? He should, oh, not, he should not be allowed to die before he gets prosecuted for war crimes. <laughs> oh, my uh, God. From your lips to God, dear. Uh, <laughs> that really works. It doesn't seem to work. <laughs> but, you know, there's people in Somalia and Kenya and Nigeria and Chad they're all experiencing the effects of the U.S. military. Mm-hmm. And and as with Cambodia, which you remember and I remember, that was a secret war, but it, it was secret mm-hmm. to us Americans, but it wasn't exactly secret to the people of Cambodia. Same well, with, exactly. Same with there. What, what are these forever wars doing to America's future relations with African nations? And it, it just it astounds me how we can't see that the current policy isn't working. I think we have to start maybe with, I mean, this is pie in the sky, but some kind of national conversation about what security really is, uh, right? Yes. Uh-huh. What does it mean for people to be secure in their lives? And this is the same conversation that needs to happen when we look at the role of the police inside the United States, yes. right? Oh, yeah. Um, so... I have a friend uh, 
who uh, worked for 15 years with Critical Resistance, which is an organization that's focused on, and this is going to sound really strange, but the abolition of prisons. And the idea is to find another way of dealing with the fact that human beings do terrible things to each other and harm each other, and in a way, find a way of dealing with that reality that does not involve putting people in cages for years. And um, one of the things that she does when she works with the community is starts by asking people. And when she's come and and, um, spoken with my students, we also have this conversation. What is it that you need in your life to feel secure? Mm. And, Mm. you know, we think about security because we live in a militarized Um, society, we think about security largely in terms of protection from external physical threats. But the reality is that what most of us need for security is less a lock on the door than the assurance that when they leave their houses, they're going to be able to afford to go to a store and buy food, that that door is going to be one that still belongs to them when they come home, that they haven't been evicted by a landlord because they can't afford to pay the rent. Or security means that when they get sick, they actually have the health care that they need rather than um, you know having to having to resort to just taking care of themselves without that. I mean, I have known people, I never forget Victor Wu, who was a friend of mine that I worked with in the 90s, who um, he had been unemployed. He had worked at as a, a pipe fitter at um, the Alameda Naval Base, which was closed down when, when Bill Clinton closed down a bunch of naval bases back when we thought we were going to get the peace dividend Mm -hmm. um, after the Soviet Union (laughs) collapsed. And Victor had been out of work for some years, and he eventually got a job as a bus driver, a good union job, and he eventually retired. But during that time when he was unemployed, he used to take his blood pressure pills and cut them in half because he had to make them last twice as long because he couldn't afford it. What kind of security is that, right? What kind of security is it when we live in a world that is burning up, you know, literally in California because of climate change, Australia, you know, when we live in a world where talking of Central America, in Honduras and on the Atlantic coast of Nicaragua this year, they were hit by two Category yes. 4 hurricanes two weeks apart. What kind of security is that, right? And I will say the most hopeful thing I've seen in the appointments that Biden has made are the ones that have to do with energy and yes. uh, the environment mm-hmm. and especially um, Deb Holland, yes. uh, at, who is, you might not know it from her last name, but she's, as you know, Native American woman from New Mexico, member of Congress, who, you know, will be the first Native American in charge of the Department of the Interior, which sounds like, you know, well, that's a really boring department, no. but this is the department that is responsible for deciding whether U.S. publicly held lands are going to be mined, are going to be um, penetrated for oil or for gas from shale. These are the these are the um, the 
depart this is the department that really can have a major effect on what our energy policy yes. is, which in turn can have an effect on real security. Oh, absolutely. So, that's that's one of I'm seriously impressed by that appointment. It's really terrific. Yeah, and, and, yeah, I agree. And he's already Biden has already said some things that come close to apologizing for what the white settlers did to the yep. the indigenous people here, and that's mm-hmm. that's a really good thing. And you know, there's also other agencies. There's that famous agency that came into existence right after September 11th, Homeland Security. Oh, yeah. Uh, and yeah. that has spent a lot of money. Funneling, uh-huh. funneling military equipment to local police across the right. country. Now, Absolutely. as we go forward here at this at this point, you know, marching to disaster. What about homeland security? One generation later, how has that homeland security changed America? Well, that's a, that is a really interesting question, and the whole. I mean, I remember that just the the um, echoes. Uh, to, frankly, to Nazi Germany of just that language of homeland yeah, security. I, it just, uh, I, I was shocked at the time, and I'm still shocked that we still have a Department of Homeland Security when we are so insecure, when we have hundreds of thousands of people dying of a, of a virus that we could have not completely prevented, but certainly the scale of death and and right. horror could have been prevented. What kind of security is that? So yeah, homeland security, and as you say, one of the effects of these forever wars is this constant shuffling between the military and police departments in this country. Yeah. And, and so people who you know were taught urban guerrilla warfare in Baghdad and Basra and and Fallujah come back. And their understanding of what it is to police is a form of urban guerrilla warfare. And then the Defense Department, because they don't know what to do with it, they have this leftover right. materiel, they're, they're handing out like candy these weapons that are designed for fighting wars. And so, you know, they have these, basically they're tanks in East oh, yeah. Oakland. Oh, they, and they've spread them out all over the country. And what I find fascinating is, I, I to me, I, I, you know, the flag has always, growing up in the 50s, as you apparently did too, the flag stood mm-hmm. for freedom and liberty and justice. Mm-hmm. And now people are, I think, desecrating the flag by putting the blue stripe across the flag. That's like, whoa, what is the yeah. identity yeah. of America? That the blue yeah. stripe is for police. I had not heard about that. That oh, yeah. that's horrifying. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, it's the red and white stripes, but in the middle, right under the uh, the field of stars, there's a blue stripe. There's a blue stripe. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, seen them on uh, a lot of cars. <laughs> yeah, well, you're in California. I suppose it's a little different, but uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, also, I don't get out much. Oh, these that's days. true. These days, oh my goodness, yes. Uh, but it, another. Uh, effect of 9-11 that's still going on is what you describe, I mean, at the airports, when oh. people have to take off our shoes, we used to take, take off our belts and everything. The, anybody who's going to attack America knows, hey, I yeah. can't do it this way. But right, and exactly. You, you call it a new and absurd kind of security theater. What do you yeah, mean? That's, that's exactly, it's theater and we're the audience, right? It's a play. <laughs> <laughs> and 
the story of the play is you are in terrible danger all the time and only your government can protect you from that terrible danger. And so as a result, we're asking you to participate. This is like audience participation theater, right? In which you take off your shoes, you have that physical experience in your body of protecting yourself by divesting yourself of your shoes and putting your your liquids in a bag that can only be so big and no bigger and this long trailing line of people to get onto an airplane and as you say you know this is it's like you know, one of the things I said in the article is for some reason, the TSA decided that they're not going to go as far as right. making us disrobe to our underwear because of the underwear bomber. But actually, I had a professor um, at graduate school because I went to graduate school late in life who was a, a Panamanian American African appearing guy with long dreads um, huh. who wore these these um, very loose pants. And early on in um, in the so-called war on terror, he was in an airport and the TSA people um, told him this was before they had the wands, I guess, to drop his pants. And he said, you, you don't want me to do that. You know, just out in front of everyone. Oh They're my. like, no, uh -oh. drop your pants. Uh -oh. He's like, no, you oh. don't want me to do that. <laughs> I think so I know finally, the rest of the story. Yeah, right. He drops his pants, and of course he's yeah. naked. Yeah. And it's like, put your pants back on. <laughs> well, listening to people is probably not a bad idea, you know, but... Uh, yeah, you know. When, you know that my partner and I were actually held up at the airport and found out that we were on the uh, so-called no-fly list. Oh, my. Uh, yeah, yeah. This was back early on when we were first publishing War Times, and I actually had a thousand copies in my bags. We were flying back east to visit my dad, um, and uh, yeah, we got up to the counter and handed in our IDs, and the uh, person behind the counter got this funny look on her face and said, there's something wrong with my computer. Wait over here. And then she went and made a phone call, and then she came back, and she said, um, and her boss came over, and her boss punched our numbers in and got the same funny look on her face and said, I need you to come stand over here with me. So we're standing in the middle of the lobby with all these people watching us. And she said, you both turned up on the FBI no-fly list, and we've called the police, and they're coming, um, and I need you to stand here with me until the police get here. So the police came. They, um, <laughs> you know... We're like, we can laugh now. Yeah. Yeah, really. They called our names in to see if we were on a master list. I'm like, okay, fine. Um, and then, you know, we'd been there for a while. I began to get really thirsty. And I said, and these were armed police, by the way. I said to one of them, of would you walk with me over to that water fountain so I can get a drink of water? And they said, no, you have to stay here. We're not going anywhere. And finally, I put on my best little girl voice. And, you know, <laughs> these are like two middle-aged white ladies, right? And as the woman behind the counter said, I don't understand this because you don't fit the profile. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I said, so suppose we are on this master list, then what, are you going to arrest us? And the officer said, well, we wouldn't arrest you, but we would have to detain you until the FBI can get here and decide what to do with you. Like, oh. So in the end, we weren't on the master list, 
and they let us get on the plane after they x-rayed everything in sight. And then we were met when we changed planes in Chicago um, by a member of the police there, and they escorted us to the next gate. And um, I, I asked uh, the person, the ticket agent, you know, is this going to happen to me every time we fly? And she said, I don't know, but if I were you, I'd get to the airport early. <laughs> yeah, it, this is what you're talking about here is clearly one of the direct effects of the national security state that we yes. have been in, in for nearly 20 years, since 9-11. Yeah. We were wondering, we're talking... And we just accept it as normal. Yes, we have accepted it as normal. And that's, you know, when I was growing up, being Jewish, I always, you know, was aware that uh -huh. police state, you don't want to yep. be in a police state. That's, that's right. That's Nazi-like stuff. Yep, that's but, right. But since 9-11, in this national security state... We ourselves, we've been treated like enemy combatants. We're spied yep. on, tracked, scanned, frisked, searched, yep. Uh, yep. intimidated, raided, censored, shot at, locked up, and even killed. I, so, Bert, I, doesn't that make you feel more secure? <laughs> that's exactly the point. It doesn't. No, it doesn't. And, and security, I do think, has something to do with feeling secure. <laughs> <laughs> Think about that. Oh my God! I know, but I wonder if we can, you know, if if having a new administration, perhaps perhaps this is a time to reflect mm -hmm. and and yeah. see where we go. And you know, America is greatly divided now. Trump's base yes. loves his America First rhetoric. So yeah. Yeah. I wonder about their take on militarism going forward, and you know where we are in terms of. You know, are we going to continue to move in the police state direction? I don't know. I mean, I have some hopes for Biden. Maybe I'm naive, but I don't know. What do I you have some hope, too. I mean, I think I think in terms of the problem of mass incarceration, I think that Biden has done a few mea culpas about having been a major proponent of the um, the big crime bills of the early 1990s. Yes. And that he he now recognizes, although he hedges, he goes back and forth. Sometimes he he thinks that 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 was um, that that was a mistake. And other times he thinks um, that actually it wasn't so bad. So as recently as 2016, um, when CNBC asked him if he was ashamed of having been the drafter, the author, basically, uh -huh. of Clinton's 1994 law that created right. these all these um, these mandatory minimums and really what was the the opening of the gates to mass incarceration. Yeah. Biden said, not at all. As a matter of fact, I drafted the bill, if you remember. He acknowledged that there were parts of the law Ooh. he changed. Like he now thinks that, um, you know, the difference between crack cocaine and powder cocaine right. created, um, you know, a racial differentiation in who goes to jail for cocaine. Right. But he argued that by and large, what it really did, it restored American cities. Now, Ooh. I don't know. That was four years ago. And I don't know what he thinks now. And I'm not sure he does either. Mm. But I do think that the Black Lives Matter movement and the sudden public attention to something that black communities have known forever, oh, yeah. that is that the police can kill their people with impunity, Absolutely. the same impunity the CIA has 
you know, for torturing people around the world. Mm -hmm. That same impunity exists here in the United States. The fact that that has suddenly entered a wider public conversation, you know, it's always been a mystery to me how you can spend years trying to get the press and the people to pay attention to a particular issue. And then suddenly something happens and, and everybody notices it like they've just discovered it. And, you know, you can only be glad that they discovered it, but, but that's what's happened with police violence and mass incarceration. So this is a moment we really, it's another wedge. It's another place where we have a domestic result, which is the militarization, further militarization of the police of these forever wars that we can seize on to say, okay, this is a reason why people living in this country should care about U.S. military projection, you know, abroad. Mm -hmm. I mean, free During the opposition to the Vietnam War, we fought so hard to try to put out the idea that we that the United States was wasting its treasure on killing people in foreign countries and also getting our soldiers killed when that same money could be used to create a better, more secure and um, more egalitarian society here in the United States. It was an argument that never worked and it still doesn't work. And I still don't understand Mm. why people believe that, you know, under Trump, our our defense spending went from around 500 billion to 700 billion or more a year. I mean, it was a huge increase. And one of the things he's doing is building up the Navy. And the reason for that is, again, because they the essentially I think Michael Clare has written about this. Uh-huh. Um, essentially, the U.S. military have changed, pivoted their strategic interest from fighting terrorism around the world to once again, great power, the great game strategies with China and to a lesser extent, Russia as being the primary adversaries rather than these essentially small Islamist movements around the world. And that that requires building a different kind Mm. of military. And it requires uh, thinking in terms of the Pacific and the South China Sea as being our primary military area. And the only thing I can say about that is Places like Central America and the Middle East are better off when the U.S. is focused elsewhere. Yes. So maybe that, <laughs> that could be an unintended good consequence. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> of course, we could, in theory, you know, instead of spending all that money on, uh, you know, bad regimes and militarism in the you know, developing nations in Africa and Central America, et cetera, we could help them. You know, uh, what a thought. What a thought. The Alliance for Progress. I don't know how real that was, but at least JFK talked about it. And- well, the Alliance, it's interesting because um, Biden has a new alliance for, he calls it, I think, the Alliance for Prosperity. Yeah. The thing about the Alliance for Progress and the Alliance for Prosperity is that they are essentially the neoliberal mm-hmm. um, model, yeah. right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of, you know, you bring in the World Bank, you do giant projects like huge hydro, um, uh-huh. hydro, 
um, capital intensive electric dams, yeah, yeah. Ca- capital intensive. And I once heard um, this uh, South Asian guy say the problem with the um, with the World Bank is that they know how to spend a billion dollars in one place. They don't know how to spend a thousand or a million dollars in a thousand places. Uh. And yeah, that's a good point. And I, I so yeah, I'm just there's so much we could learn and not too hard, you know, and, you know, formerly Great Britain, they, they mm-hmm. had an empire, which was based on the yep. Navy, by the way, and it increased the wealth of their upper classes. And right. And but I don't know if that's understood now, but it seems to be, you know, kind of like, a wink and a nod that that's what's going on there. And and you say Biden does not seem to be, quote, de- he, he, he's not inclined to destabilize that Democratic-Republican imperial yeah. pact. And yeah. he, he, as you say, empires are not sustained by inclination alone. They don't last forever. They overextend themselves. They rot from within. And yeah. I, I, it's, I think our empire is ending, that we're moving away from needing to dominate and control then maybe they're being able to uh, being able to yes maybe there's a new strategy of being a good neighbor respecting others perhaps perhaps maybe ahead that we haven't achieved any of our stated goals since in wars since 9-11 well exactly yeah one of the things that we were gonna do yeah did it actually achieve there's more in there's more use of the tactic of terrorism today than there was you know 20 years ago Absolutely. So maybe it's time for a different strategy. We can, yeah. you know, people people in Congress actually do care about what their constituents think. You yes, know, they have to raise exactly. a lot of money, but when it comes down to it, the money is there to buy advertising to convince people to vote for them. So right. what what can people do if they're they're listening? I mean, we can hope for Biden, but you know, we can focus perhaps a little bit on foreign policy and just uh, try to mm-hmm. communicate with our members of Congress. I don't know if you have other ideas and suggestions for what people can do. I think it's important for people to organize, for them to find ways in which they can act not just as individuals, but as individuals in a larger organization that um, has the power to move members of Congress in a way that just the individual act of writing letters, even if there are hundreds of them, doesn't have. And I'm thinking about non-governmental organizations, but especially, frankly, labor unions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the you know we have watched both Democratic and Republican governments over the last 50 years preside over the near death of the organized labor movement. Yeah. But I think that when you consider, and I do believe this is true, that labor creates all wealth, that fundamentally the wealth and the security of this country depends on the work yes. that human beings do, both paid and unpaid, and I include the women who work Absolutely. in the home in that, yep. that, that one of the arenas in which people, you know, when, which we've really seen it demonstrated that you can do more collectively than you can as individuals is in organized labor. And I'm not saying that there haven't been problems with corruption and anti-democratic unions and all of that. But the truth is that that's one arena in which people really can create organizations that are more powerful than they would be as individuals. And, and I mean, I've seen it. Yes, I've seen it. 
It does work. Well, thank you so much. Well, I look forward to the next time we get together and may 2021 be a better year. Rebecca Gordon and uh, people can follow you on the Internet. How? Any particular way? Or maybe yes, uh, at um, American Nuremberg. Ah. And I don't tweet a whole lot. I'm not a Facebook person, but I do have a website called MainstreamingTorture.org. Ah. And there you will find um, links to articles that I write and a way to get in touch with me. Thank you so, so much for being with us today. And let's have a good day. Bert, it was a great pleasure. Likewise. Thank you.